Welcome back, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Michael Fratt. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Uh, we're very happy to have everyone back for uh, another class with uh, Rabbi David Siller for Your Name Shall Be Great, the Avram Narrative. Um, it is our last class for the fall. Today's class, I think Rabbi Silver is going to say a little bit more about this as well, but today's class is uh, dedicated in memory of Charles Feldman, Al Vashalom, um, uh, by Joe Bartel. Um, so we are grateful for that dedication, for the opportunity to, uh, to honor Chuck's memory. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Silver. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yes, so uh, that today's class is in memory of Dr. Feldman, Charles Feldman, Chuck Feldman, good friend of Drisha and good friend of, my, of mine. And his memory should be a blessing. Uh, okay, so today is, as uh, Michael said, the last of this, this series. We continue, of course, the next semester with, with Abraham and other classes as well. So picking up again, we're in chapter 15. This is the chapter of the, the covenant, the Brit, known as Brit Behabitarim. The Betarim being the pieces, the animals that Avram is cuts in half and places on either side, facing each other. Um, and uh, we noticed uh, that the, a lot of the language of chapter 15 uh, resonates with the language of chapter 14. And the interpretation I offered was that chapter 14, at the core of chapter 14, is the idea that Abraham has in a symbolic way possessed the land by defeating the four kings who, who, who themselves had defeated the main players, the main powers in the land of Canaan. And that list is parallel to the list we find in the beginning of Sefer Dvarim. What Avram has done is symbolically possess the land. And then what chapter 15 is about is that the promise that someday Avram's descendants or some of his descendants will actually possess this covenantal land. So that's the deep link between 15 and 14. I did want to mention, uh, an additional literary connection between the two chapters, in my opinion, and the very difficult and important verse for other reasons is found in chapter 15 in the sixth verse. There it says that after God took Avram outside by Yoteo Tohachutza, Avram had uh, said, expressed his concern that his inheritor will be Eliezer of Damascus, not his own heir. And what could you give me? God, even as he's speaking, God says, no, no. He, he won't inherit you. Your own child born of you will inherit you. Your own issue shall be your heir. And then he took Avram outside, brought him outside, brought him outside and asked him to count the stars rhetorically. Of course, you can't count the stars. Thus will your descendants be so numerous. And verse number six, Vehemin Bashem, So that's a very important verse for many reasons. It's one that Paul picks up on in his writings about faith, how faith trumps uh, action. Vehemin Bashem is often translated. Uh, here, this translation put his trust in God 
I don't know what Safaria has, but put his trust in God. And that's unclear. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. So who's reckoned to whom? So the one possibility is that God reckoned Avram's trust or belief as righteousness. The Ramban didn't like that. Because for the Ramban, of course he believed. Everybody believes, and that's that wouldn't be a great um, a great accolade uh, that he believes. We expect him to believe. Rather, that Avram believed that God's promise was on account of God's righteousness. Um, if we take the first possibility, personally, I would lean more to the first. But Avram vehemin b'ashem. Now the question is how to translate vehemin. Emuna. What does emuna mean? Let's say in, in the Bible, in the Torah. I'm not sure it means to believe, to believe that God exists. I don't think that's what it's about. Emuna means steadfastness in the Bible, and let's say the Bible, the Torah. And I would, I I, I simply suggest over here that perhaps hamin means um Hamin means to uh to uh, to affirm like the word amen when we say amen what we're doing is affirming that what was just stated is actually true and i was wondering about that over here Bashem, that avram through his trust in in fact affirms accepts or affirms what god is saying the promise and that's accounted it to him as his affirmation as seen as a as a righteous as a righteous deed and i wonder about that for the following reason we know that chapter 15 and 14 have many literary connections so the word tzedakah over here in verse number 6 has an echo in chapter 14 namely the king who comes to greet abraham um there it says that he, he brought out over here we have God brings Avram out out of where he's standing, takes him outside and, and says to him, and Avram believes this. He trusts in God. In his trust, he is affirming and the affirmation is seen as righteous. And it struck me that we have something very similar in chapter 14. Because in chapter 14, when Malkitzedek comes to greet Avraham, he greets him with uh, wine and with bread. One might say with, with, with that, we call that sacramental, not water and bread, but wine and bread, he's a priest. And he says that you are blessed to God. You've done God's work. Not only are you blessed to God, but blessed is the God, Hashem began Sarecha Biyodecha, who delivered your enemies to your to your hands. Here we have the echo of Magain Lach in chapter 15. And Abraham, when he hears this, gives Malkitzedek a tithe, gives the priest a tithe. And then the king of Sodom makes an offer to Abraham. You can keep the money, give the possessions, give me the people. And Avram says to, to the king of Sodom at the end of chapter 14, 
I raise up my hand. That means I swear. I swear by the God, El Elyon, Hashem, who is El Elyon, the creator of heaven and earth, which is what Malkitzedek has just said. When Malkitzedek greets Abraham in chapter 14, he said to, Av to Avram, Baruch Avram li El Elyon, Tone Shemayim Varetz. So Avram is repeating what Malkitzedek says. And in repeating what Malkitzedek says, and what did Malkitzedek say? God has made this possible. You do God's work. God makes it possible. Avram gives the maaser to Malkitzedek, thereby affirming that he accepts what Malkitzedek says. And over here, we have a further affirmation because what he's saying to the king of Sodom is that I can't take anything from you because my portion already has been, is, 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 is connected to, to what God has done for me. So in a sense, I've given my portion to God. I, I, I stake my claim with, with God. If you stake your claim with God, you can't stake your claim with the king of Sodom. So essentially what Abraham has done in chapter 14 is to affirm what Malkitzedek says and the affirmation is through the oath, the shvua. And I suggest that the shvua also is a kind of affirmation. To be nishba, bashem, is to affirm. As we say, for example, in the in the in the Oleinu prayer, every knee should bow, should bend to you, that and should swear to you should should actually affirm your kingship. So what you have in chapter fifteen, Bashem, that Avram affirms it, and then the Torah says is reconnecting us to the Malkitzedek story and reconnecting because Malkitzedek said essentially is you've done God's work. You've symbolically possessed the land which God intended to be the, the summit of God's creation, which is the second creation narrative, which is a fulfillment of God's plan even in the first creation narrative, Shemayim Haaretz. Both creation narratives begin with the same verse. The first creation narrative, and the second creation narrative, which for some strange reason is chapter 2, verse 4, it should be chapter 2, verse 1, but it's chapter 2, verse 4. So we have over here, Avram's affirmation is, of course, tzedakah, as was the affirmation he made through the Shvuah in chapter 14. So this, that's another connection that we have here between chapters 14 and chapter 15. That's a small point I wanted to make. And then let me get to a different point. And afterwards, I'll stop for a moment and take comments or questions. And that has to do with the terms of the covenant. Avram says in chapter 15, after God has promised him the land, an heir and the land, I would say, and in verse number eight of chapter 15, which I understood to mean through what? How will I know in the sense, what, what must I do? It's not so much doubting, it says he trusted. So he doesn't doubt actually. He actually, he affirms it, he affirms the promise. But the question is something else. This promise of land comes at some price. It's, if it's a covenant and the Torah will describe it as such, 
Covenant is a two-sided agreement. This ultimate possession, the fulfillment of God's plan in all, in all, in all creation, in all being. What is the cost? What must I do to secure it? And the answer is, of course, that spelled out with the three animals and the fourth animals, birds, the three generations of suffering, Geirut, Avdut, and Inui. Those are the three terms the Torah used. And the fourth generation, Dorivi'i, which returns to the land, Yashuvu Hena, that's represented by the birds. And as I pointed out last week, the birds are not, are not cut. The animals, the three animals, three years old that are cut, represent the three terms of the, of the, the three commitments, Gerut, Avdut, and, uh, and the Inui, that is spelled out in this, in this chapter. They're spelled out in, uh, let's find that verse, in verse number 13. Yeah, in verse 13. Uh, verse 13, it's explicit. Uh, you should know very well your doa te da, you ask da, your doa te da. Ger is one, avadum is two, slavery. Inu, oppression. Inu is the third term. Those three are represented by the three animals. And the fourth generation returns to the land. That's a couple of verses later. After it says in verse 15, you will die in ripe old age and be buried in, uh, in peace. The fourth generation shall return to the land. I'll get to the second half of that verse in a few minutes. But let me get to the first part. The Torah actually separates the three generations from the fourth generation, even in terms of the way it tells, even the way the text is set up. Because after it says the third generation, they will leave with great possessions, and then suddenly it interposes something about Avram in between. You will die in ripe old age. And then only afterwards it says, the fourth generation shall return to the land. So let's think about this for a moment. The idea of returning to the land, the idea of possessing the land, that's the story of chapter 14. Chapter 14 is about the symbolic possession of the land. That was Avram's battle against the four kings. So essentially, the fourth generation that returns to the land, one might say will be following in Avram's footsteps, the footsteps which are uh, essentially described for us in chapter 14. But what about the other part of it? What about the first three generations? The generations that endure Gerut, Avdut, and Inui. Is that also precipitated uh, earlier in the, in the Avram narrative? And clearly the answer is yes, because in chapter 12, when Avram first sets out on the journey, Lechucha, we're told that after a short while, there's a detour down to Egypt. And um, Avraham says to Saul, we're going down to Egypt, Lagur. We're going to, 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 be, to be Gerim there, means temporary residence. But in the land of Mitzrayim, uh, there is, one might say, Gerut, Abdut, and Inui. Not those words, but what happens in effect is that there is 
someone is taken by force and she can't leave and she is, one might say, violated by Paro. Inui often is a sexual in the, in the Torah. So it's kind of inappropriate sexual behavior. That's Inui. And she's taken captive. And both of them are, are strangers. They're, they're foreigners. So therefore, one might say that the promise of chapter 15, the covenantal description of chapter 15, is nothing other than the story that we've already read in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And if this is true, and I think it clearly is the case, then it's very interesting that the person who undergoes the covenantal experience as described in the Torah is not really Avraham. Avraham may be a stranger in the land of Egypt, he may be unhappy they took Sarah, but at the end of the day, the Torah emphasized that we Avraham Hitif Bahurah. He left with a lot of possessions. He himself was not taken captive. So the person that represents the covenantal suffering is none other than uh, Sarah. So there's something very interesting about that. And I'll come to a, for a moment, to a second related point about this covenant and what's interesting about the covenant. What is interesting about the covenant is that there's a prediction of three generations of suffering and the fourth generation returns to the land. But it doesn't actually tell us when this is gonna happen. In point of fact, uh, one fulfillment of this promise clearly takes place not in the book of Breshit so much, but in the next book, which is the book of Shemot. Book of Shemot begins with, these are the names of the sons of Yaakov who came down to Egypt. And the Torah makes it clear that uh, what happens in the very first chapter of the book of Exodus, the Torah has describes the experience of the Jews in Egypt, first as Inui, Pharaoh placed over them taskmasters, Uman those are the first verses of the book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, Inui. And the next verses, we have the word Ayin Bet David, Avodah, Eved, five times. Five times twice Inui, total of seven. So the experience in Egypt, in the very beginning of the book of Exodus, chapter one, Torah makes it clear. That description is one of Avdut and Inui, which of course is exactly what the Torah says here, as God says, what's going to happen? What must happen for you to ultimately possess the land through this experience, which begins with the three generations of suffering, and uh, of course, when you're studying the book of Exodus that we're not doing at the moment, the question we all ask obviously is what happened to the third term, which is Gerut. But Gerut is in fact mentioned not in chapter one, but in chapter two. So you have Gerut. Moshe runs away, meets his wife at the well, they're married, the first child is Gershom, for Moses said, Gerayiti I was a Ger in a foreign land, which there refers to Egypt. 
So Moshe sees his experience in Mitzrayim as a gear. And right away, the Torah says that God remembers God's, God's covenant. This covenant, the end of chapter two, right after Moshe names his son, their son Gershom, God suddenly remembers the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembers, Vayeda Elohim, and God knew. Picking up on the language over here, Yadoa Teda. So one fulfillment, clearly, of the covenant is the experience in the land of Egypt. The entire, the entire ritual we call the Seder is based on that assumption. That's what the Seder is about. It's seeing the experience of leaving Egypt as, as covenantal and it's wondering, wants us to wonder what that means to be covenantal in light of the experience of Mitzrayim. That's what the Seder is about. So that's one fulfillment, and that's not clear over here. What's interesting from that perspective is that the going down to Egypt, Abraham and Sarah going down to Mitzrayim, if you read that as essentially, this is the covenant. The covenant is those who are covenantal are walking in Abraham and Sarah's footsteps. So the experience was in Mitzrayim. The Geirut Avdet and Inui that the covenant refers to it doesn't say there was Inui and there was Abdut and Gerut in Mitzrayim in chapter 12, but the Torah is recasting that experience in this language. And then later on, when Israel goes down to Egypt, that's exactly what happens to them. So one fulfillment is certainly taking place in the second book of the Torah. And by the way, the Torah makes it clear that this is the case. And I've pointed this out many times that the reader actually knows when you open up the book of Exodus, the reader knows that in fact, this will be a covenantal fulfillment. How does the reader know this? Apart from the fact that Abdut and Inui appear prominently in the beginning of the book of Exodus, but if you remember the book of Exodus chapter one, it says these are the names that came down with Jacob, has the names of Yaakov's sons, and Yosef is in Egypt. And then the Torah says, the very beginning of Sefer Shemot, Vayomot Yosef v'chol echav v'chol hadorahu. Joseph and his brothers and that generation died. And Israel multiplied and a new Pharaoh arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. So what's interesting is the verse, Vayomot Yosef v'chol echav v'chol hadorahu. That generation died. Why did the Torah mention the generation? If the point is the new Egypt, the new Pharaoh emerged who didn't know Joseph, say Joseph died, Joseph's brothers died. And after the death of Joseph and his brothers, there was a power that doesn't, doesn't remember Joseph. But what's Joseph and the brothers and the Dor Hahu? But the Chumash obviously wants us to count out the generations. Says the Torah in the book of Exodus, when you count out the generations in the book of Exodus, you start after the death of Joseph and his brothers. And in point of fact, if you remember the book of Exodus, actually, it gives us genealogies of some of the tribes in the beginning of the book, in chapter six, the tribe of Levi is prominently given a, a place. And it says Levi, Levi, Levi has two sons. One is, uh, one is uh, 
One is Kahat, three sons actually. One is Kahat. So Kahat is the first generation of suffering because the suffering takes place after Joseph and the brothers and the generation die. So generation one of suffering is Kahat. Then one of Kahat's sons is named Amram. So Amram is second generation of suffering. Amram has two sons, Moses and Aaron, Moshe and Aaron. So Moshe is a third generation sufferer. Means the generation of Moses is third generation sufferers. But we know, of course, about the covenant. The Torah has made it clear in the book of Exodus that this experience will be covenantal with the Abdut and the Inui and the Gerut. So it means that the people that leave Egypt with Moshe are not going to enter the land because the Torah said, verse number 16, only the fourth generation shall return to the land. We know more than Moses. Moses doesn't know that. He believes, no doubt, that the people he's talking to were going to enter the promised land. We know it's not going to happen because it says the fourth generation shall return to the land. <clears throat> so that's the experience there. And I'll get to the second half of the verse in a minute. So that's certainly one fulfillment of this covenantal promise. The Torah makes it clear. However, let's, present, let's presume we never read the book of Exodus. We're just starting with Genesis chapter one, verse one, reading through. And you come to this section in chapter 15. And now the question is, how do you count the generations? So I think that every rational person would presume that the way you count the generations is, since God is speaking to Abraham in this chapter, that Abraham is generation number one, that his son Yitzchak is generation number two, and that Yaakov is generation number three, and that generation number four of hand would be the sons of Jacob. That's how it would play out. And that's the fulfillment of this covenant then if you forget about the book of Exodus, because we never saw the book of Exodus, as we read through the book of Genesis, our book, so presumably the three generations are Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov being the third generation, and the fourth generation is the next generation, Yaakov's children. Now, actually, I believe it's a little bit more complex than that, but let's take it at this level. So what's interesting is, if you think of it this way, if the experience is is to be found in the book of, 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 of Reshit, we would expect to find the language of Gerut, Avdut, and Inui in the book of Reshit. Do we find this triad of Gerut, Avdut, and Inui in the book of Reshit or not? To which the answer is a resounding yes. We actually find it twice, but let's go to the second instance of Gerut, Avdut, and Inui. It's very interesting. And that, of course, is in terms of Yaakov. Yaakov in chapter 31. Yaakov runs away from Lavan in chapter 31. Lavan chases after him. Another parallel to the exodus from Egypt, chases after him. God is protecting Jacob and the family. Lavan catches up with Yaakov. Lavan says, why did you run away? I would have thrown a big party for you. And why did you steal my, steal my gods? Yaakov does know that Rachel has taken the trophim of, 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 of Lavan. Yaakov says, I ran away because if I didn't run away, I'd still be there. You I never, would never allow me to leave. Would have stolen your daughters from me. As far as your gods are concerned, you could, I didn't take them. You want to go search, go search. 
So Lovin searches. He searches all the tents, Yaakov's tents, the wives' tents, he can't find anything. And then Yaakov gets angry. In that speech, towards the end of chapter 31, Yaakov describes his 20 years of experience in the house of Lavan. He looks back at the 20 years, he describes his experience. He has two terms for it. One is avoda, avadaticha. I slave for you 14 years for your daughters and six years for the sheep. You change my wages 10 times. And then he continues further in the chapter and he says to Lavan, if I hadn't, if, if God hadn't protected me, I would have nothing. Et God saw on ye my suffering and the work of my hands and rebuked you last night. So Yaakov describes his experience. At the end of the 20 years, he's about to leave from Lavan, split from Lavan, with two terms, avoda and inui. Avdut and inui. That's how Yaakov describes. What's missing is, of course, Gerut. The same as the book of Exodus. What's missing is his description of the experience as being a marginal person, as being a ger. We don't have that in chapter 31, but we do have it in chapter 32. And Yaakov sends the messengers to Esav. Tell Esav, in Lavan Garti, I was a ger in the house of, of, of Lavan. So Yaakov describes his experience as Abdut, Inui, and uh, Gerut. It means that, and Jacob is the third generation. So Yaakov is the one more than anybody else who describes this experience in covenantal terms. It's not that he assumed necessarily for the first 20 years that, that he was the subject of this covenantal triad but at the end of 20 years, he's come to an understanding. And so after he leaves, looking back at the experience, he says, So what we have in the Chumash then are two different fulfillments of the same covenant. One is in the book of Breshit on the level of family. That's one fulfillment. And the second fulfillment is on the level of nation, which the story there begins in the book of Exodus. The ones I think who understood this better than anybody is whoever this person may be, the anonymous author of what we call the Haggadah Shal Pesach. Because the Haggadah Shal Pesach takes it one step further. If it happened twice, claims the Haggadah, it could happen many more times. It could happen in every generation, the Chodor Vodar. The Haggadah sees history as, as, uh, as, as repeating, as kind of cyclical, and it could happen again, it could happen to us. But in the Chumash anyway, it happens twice. It happens on the level of family. It happens on the level of nation. And what's interesting to me is this, that the person who represents, uh, yes, the person, uh, Micah has a question in the chat, which I'll respond to. Um, I'll get to that in a minute. But the person who read in the book of, of Breshit, in our book, the person who actually un describes his own experience as Gerud, Avdut, and Inui, not in that order, is of course Yaakov. The person who actually experienced is Gerud, Avdut, and Inui, which becomes recast as covenantal, is Sarah. And what struck me as interesting is they have two things in common, Yaakov and, and Sarah. One is they are the two people in the book of Genesis that people mourn for. 
There's a long description of the mourning that we have that Avram has for Sarah, Chai Sarah. There's a whole chapter about finding a burial place for Sarah, which becomes a place that represents acquisition in the land. And Jacob, there's a long description of his burial. And the last thing Jacob speaks, the last words are about the grave that was that Avram purchased. And what's also interesting is that they actually have the same name. We have Sarah, and Jacob becomes Yisrael. He's named for his grandmother. Yaakov's named for his grandmother. And those two have something in common. So the people that we mourn, actually, are the two through their experience covenantal. It's true that Genesis is a patriarchal book and the blessing is passed down from father to son, that's for sure. It's true the women sometimes understand better how they're supposed to work, that's also for sure. But what's interesting is that in terms of the experience, it's Sarah and it's Israel. Those are the two, and perhaps that's the reason that we actually mourn them. We mourn those people, not just who believed in the covenant, not just who thought about the covenant, not just who studied the covenant, but who actually lived the covenant. And the two who live it are Sarah and Yisrael. Those are the two. Now, a question in the chat I saw was, how come Ger, in the case of Yaakov, is in chapter 32, and Ger here is first. That the terms over here when God lists the terms, back in verse number 13. So first is Ger, and then you have Avdut, and then you have Inui, that's the order. But when it comes to Yaakov's fulfillment of it, first there's Avdut, then there's Inui, that's in 31, and Ger is in 32, and it's similar also in the book of Exodus, because in the book of Exodus, you have Inui and Avdut in chapter one. There the order is reversed, by the way. There's good reason for it. You can't explain everything, you know, not in the time, but some other time. But the order is reversed. But Ger appears there only in chapter two, only in conjunction with Moshe, who names his son Gershom, for he said, Ger Gershom, there I was a Ger. So how come in both cases, Ger is at the end, but in the covenantal formula, Ger is first? That was Micah's question. So what I think is the following. I think that in the formula, which we have over here, it has a very sensible order because being a Ger, being a marginal person is what actually allows often for the Abdut and then for the Inuit. People on the margins, people that are seen as second-class citizens, people that are seen as not truly part of society are easy victims. That's been the history of the Jewish people and many other peoples. Uh, people that are marginalized, marginalizing people is often the first step towards persecution. So over here, it makes total sense. You will be Gerim, it's true of Jacob in the house of love, and it's true of Israel in the land of Egypt. And what follows from that is that the people in power taking advantage, in the case of Robin taking advantage of Yaakov, getting him to work for 14 years for nothing or less than nothing, and then another six years and all that, changing the wages 10 times. Of course, Mitzrayim is similar. The Jews are enemies, says Paro. The Jews are dangerous. So they're going to join up with the enemy. 
and then there's the Inui and the Avdu. That's true, but there's also another truth, and that is not in terms of what sets it up, but in terms of the person at the other end, the one who's being persecuted, what that person understands. And in the Chumash, the understanding that you are a Ger takes place last. Because when someone beats you up, someone hits you, someone abuses you, usually we, we, we actually know that. But to be a Ger means something else. To be a Ger means to have a, a sense of identity, which is separate from the one who is, uh, who is abusing me. And sad to say that very often we don't have that understanding. The example of Mitzrayim is a very good one. The Jews suffer in Egypt. But we know that the experience of the desert is uh, described as often a desire to return to Egypt. We remember the fish we had in Egypt for nothing and the cucumbers and the watermelon. We seem to have forgotten the slavery and the abuse and the boys being thrown into the Nile River. So the idea of seeing one as separate from, from, the, from, the, from the main culture, seeing one as having one's own identity that comes later and it comes in both cases, both in Exodus chapter two and in Genesis chapter 32, after somebody leaves. It's only after you leave, you look back. Only after the separation, looking back, then you say, looking back at that situation, it was terrible and actually wasn't me. The culture of love and is not my culture. But when you're there, when, when you're part of it, you don't have the critical distance to separate. And furthermore, you actually become part of it. You sort of embrace it on some level. That's the danger of Lavan. Lavan is a very, very dangerous person because unlike Paro, Paro doesn't really talk ethics and, 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 uh, and uh, morality. Lavan talks morality. Avimelech talks morality, not Paro. So the fact is that it's very dangerous. So after the, so from a psychological standpoint, experiential standpoint, it's only after you leave that you can uh, fully uh, understand, or you have the ability to come to an understanding of who you are. And who you are is not constant with who they are. And then you realize in love and Garti, or Gerayiti Biyaretz Nachriya, that's only after the fact. That's why the order is different. Now this, the order is different, it's interesting, in the case of uh, Mitzrayim, as I mentioned, there Inui precedes Avdut. In the case of in the case of Yaakov, Avdut precedes Inui in chapter thirty-one. Here, Avdut precedes Inui. Avodun <coughs> v'inuotam. Let's see. How does it appear in the in the in the in the Haggadah? In the uh, Rami Oved Ovi, the core text of the Passover Haggadah. Let's see. So Ger is first. Next verse. So when Arami Oveda V, the Inui precedes the Abdut. That makes sense, actually, because Arami Oveda V talks about Egypt. And in Mitzrayim, Inui preceded Abdut. But in the but in the formula in our form, our chapter, here the Avdut precedes Inuit. Now, why that is the case, I can't get into now, but we simply take note of the fact. So 
Arami Ovelavi also has the three terms, Gerut, Avdut, and Inui, which is one of the many reasons I think it was chosen as the core text of the Passover Haggadah. So I'll stop here for a moment. And if anybody has comments or questions, I will try to deal with it. I will deal with the question I saw in the chat of I'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But meanwhile, anybody has comments or questions, please speak up. Yeah, about Malki Tzedek, um, 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 his, uh, his blessing to Abraham foreshadowing what, how God will in fact himself bless Abraham. It seems to me that, that, that actually that same sequencing seems to be in play in, in Jacob first being blessed with the name changed by an angel, and then later God appears to him and changes his name. That is, uh, that could be, could be something. You have to figure what the significance of that is. That is true, that the angels, person angel, changes Jacob's name in chapter 32, and then God changes Jacob's name in chapter 35. That is true. The significance is interesting. That's, it's something to think about what that's about. But it's an interesting point. Thank you for that. Anybody else? Comment. Uh, first of all, according to what um, I, I uh, learned from you, so if Yaakov is the third generation, so Israel is the fourth one. That is true. I have said that. That's ready to. And more that's importantly, it, that's, I have said that many times, and I think that's extraordinarily interesting, but not for now. Brilliant. Yes. And I also want to mention something else I learned from you, which impressed me very much that now you can understand that when Sarah, the Shifcha and the Hagar, it's like an invitation to join the Brit. That is true. And we're going to get to that. That's the next chapter, actually. That is certainly the case that chapter 16, since you mentioned it at this point, I'll just repeat what you're saying. Uh, chapter 16, you have the three terms. You have Ger, you have Inui, and then you have Shifcha, not Evan, because it's talking about a woman. So the female counterpart to Evan is Shifcha, but you have all three, of course, and that's the story of Hagar and exactly the point, that is the suggestion, that in chapter 16, there's an offer that Hagar has an opportunity to become covenantal, which she, which she rejects. She does not interested in the, in the covenant. And by the way, we will get to chapter 16. If not today, we'll begin with chapter 16. Uh, you know, in uh, when we pick up again next semester. But I just wanted to emphasize that the covenant, as described in the Chumash which ultimately Esau rejects the covenant, Ishmael rejects the covenant, Hagar rejects the covenant. But it's a covenant, as the Chumash describes it, that most people we know would not be so interested in this covenant. Because remember, not only does it involve three generations of suffering, Gerut, Avdut, and Inui, but even more than that, Jacob is a perfect example. Jacob, is the great sufferer, as he says himself, my years have been bad and few. But the suffering is for a higher purpose. The suffering is to, to be covenantal. But remember that the possession of the land, the blessings that come as a result of the covenant don't accrue to the third generation. They only accrue to the fourth generation represented by the birds. Now, of course, the three, the generations are connected to each other in a very deep way. And the generations 
should see themselves as part of the covenant. That also is central to the Passover Haggadah. That's the Pesach ritual. We see ourselves as part of the covenantal process. We don't see the people that, we don't see the people that suffered in Mitzrayim and all die in the desert as, uh, as some kind of losers or something like that. Quite the opposite. Yitzhak Mitzrayim is the great moment in our tradition that, that we celebrate. Why do we celebrate it? Every person virtually who left Egypt dies in the desert. But of course the answer is <coughs> no. Every person that left Egypt is part, of the, is part of the covenantal process. They're setting up the next generation. They can't be expected to do everything. And I'll come back to this point about, so we see ourselves as part of the process. That's, that requires an enormous amount of faith, confidence in, in one's belief, confidence in, 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 the, in, the, in the God of the covenant. But most people would say, as Hagar says, listen, suffering is maybe very noble. I'm not interested. I, I suffered enough. I don't want to suffer. The angel says, go back and, and suffer. That's not my thing. That's not my thing. And it's not most people's thing either. So the price is high. When Avram said, there's a very stiff price over here, which most people would not be interested in. The hero is Yaakov. Yaakov is interested. Yaakov is willing to pay that price. But that's not, it's not something we could assume to be the case. Uh, okay, so let's, anything else and I will continue. Yeah, can uh, I make a quick yes, observation? Sir. The suffering of Sarah and of Bnei Israel seemed to have started by a voluntary sale. Zavram sold Sarah to the Mitzrayim and the brothers sold Yosef to the slave traders. So we started it. That is very true. The Ramban makes that connection actually. The Ramban says it explicitly. Ramban says, our father Abraham sinned grievously in going down to Egypt. He should not have gone in the first place. And he should not have placed his, uh, his, his wife in jeopardy. And because of that, says the Ramban, we are destined to go down to Egypt. And the same thing is true of Atanel Sarai, that Sarai afflicted Hagar. And the Ramban points out, that the ones who bring us down to Egypt, where we're afflicted, are none, none other than the uh, Yishmaelim. Joseph is brought down by uh, Yishmael. So the Ramban makes that connection. That is true that we have, it, in some sense, set this uh, chain of events into, uh, you know, into, into motion. We have to take some responsibility for that. That's for sure. So it's, it's not, yeah I, yeah, I think that's clear that going to Mitzrayim is very very problematic. That's 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 for sure. Okay, let us now continue with chapter fifteen. A couple other observations about chapter fifteen. Yeah. So let's go. So there was a question in the chat. <coughs> Before I get to that, let me ask. Let me let me. There's enough else in the chat I want to answer. Do you think Yaakov knew about the suffering beforehand? That's Gail's question. That's an excellent question. I believe he does. Not in the case of Lavan. I think the point of the Chumash, maybe someday if we keep with Breshit, maybe someday we get there. The point is, I mentioned there are two parallel stories. There's the story of Yaakov in the house of Lavan, and there's the story of Israel in the land of Egypt. 
But we have to remember, they, of course, the Passover had God that ties those two together. Go and study what Lovan did to Jacob. Pharaoh only decreed against the boys. Lovan would have uprooted everything. So the Haggadah itself pretty much explicitly compares Lovan to, to, to Paro. Because the two stories are parallel stories. But what's interesting is, if you think about the experience of, where does the experience of, 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 of Egypt begin? So the point I made earlier was that in the book of Exodus, it begins after Joseph and the generation died. That's when the suffering begins. That's in the book of Exodus. But in our book, in Breshit, it actually begins at a different point. I'm not saying the suffering begins at a different point, but that's the story in chapter 46 when Yaakov goes down to, to, uh, to, to Mitzrayim. He goes down ostensibly to see his son Joseph, whom he has discovered is alive. And when he's leaving the land in chapter 46, he brings sacrifices to the God of Yitzchak. And God says to Yaakov, 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 Bayomer Hineni. That's a code. Hineni means something awesome is happening. And God says to Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. When God says, don't be afraid, when someone tells you, don't be afraid, that's the moment you stop being afraid. Don't be afraid. I will go down with you and I will bring you back. Joseph will be there when you die. And when you study that chapter 46, which is an incredibly important set of verses, you re realize immediately that chapter 46 and chapter 28 are parallel chapters. That Jacob leaving from Beersheba to go to the house of Laban in 28 is parallel to Jacob leaving from Beersheba to go to Mitzrayim. And what's going to happen soon after Jacob comes to Mitzrayim from a narrative standpoint is Gerut, Avdut, and Inui. So therefore, I would argue that when Jacob goes down to Mitzrayim, Jacob understands what awaits him in Mitzrayim, because of what awaits him in Mitzrayim is exactly what await, what the experience that Jacob had in the house of Lovin. And in fact, the Chumash sets it up because it has God and Jacob interacting in chapter 46 upon the descent to Egypt in exactly parallel language to Jacob leaving the land from Beersheba and going to the house of Lovin. There are all kinds of interesting literary links between the two stories. So yes, I would make the argument that Yaakov, and only Yaakov, knows what awaits him in the land of Egypt. I'll, tell, I'll say one thing now about that and all these things, everything's connected. So, you know, but let me mention one uh, interpretation that I offered many years ago in conjunction with your question. Does, does, does Yaakov know? And it's interesting, the end of, towards the very end of Sefer Breshit, uh, Yaakov blesses his sons. Yaakov blesses his sons, all his sons. Each one gets a different kind of blessing. Some appear to be more of a critique than a blessing, but it's a blessing in the sense he includes all of them. Everybody's included. He doesn't exclude anybody. And amongst the blessings, it's very strange. So he blesses the tribe of Don, he blesses his son Don, which is, becomes the tribe of Don. Don Yadina Don will be judged the people like one of the leading tribes of Israel. Don is like a snake that travels on the road. 
הנחש שפיפון, הנושכת וסוס ויפול רוחבו אחר, who bites the heel of the horse and the rider falls off. And then we have three very strange words. Rishuatcha kiviti Hashem. Great, one of the great mysteries of the Torah. Rishuatcha kiviti Hashem. What is that about? Whose blessing is that connected to? Because it continues afterwards with the tribe with God. Uh, Baruch, what does it say over there? Let's find that for a second. It's chapter 49. Let's see. Um, you have Zavul and Yisachar. Donya Dinamo is verse number 16 and 17. Hashem. I pray for your salvation, O God. What is that doing there? Well, what? Middle of nowhere. All kinds of suggestions. Here's my suggestion. Hashem, in my opinion, is the following. He just got finished saying, Don Yadin Amo Kiachad Shifte Yisrael. Don will be, will Yadin Amo, Don will judge or perhaps avenge his people as one of the leading tribes. As Jacob is saying the blessing of Don, Don is like the snake that goes on the road and bites the heel of the horse and the rider falls off. And then Jacob is about to bless his next son, which is God. And Jacob stops. Because Jacob remembers, as the reader does, that word done, which we have in our chapter, and we had in chapter 14. God said to Abraham, the nation which enslaves them, I will be done, I will judge. Then they'll leave with, with possessions. And Jacob is give, blessing his sons in the land of Egypt. And Jacob understands what Egypt is. Nobody else does. His sons are living it up in the land of Egypt. They're doing very well. Stock market's up, it's all good. But Jacob understands. Jacob said to Joseph, get me out of here. I can't be in Mitzrayim. God doesn't speak in Egypt. That's what Jacob cares about. This is not my place. And Jacob suddenly has the word done. And he's blessing Don. And what is the blessing of Don? He bites the heel of the horse and the rider falls off. What nation is representing the Torah by horse and rider? Of course, Egypt, right? What's the song? What's Shirat Ayam? God threw the horse and the rider in the sea. And what's the next verse? God is my strength. And is my Yeshua, my salvation. Hashem is Jacob's prayer that nobody understands. He can't even tell anybody about his prayers. No one would understand. They laugh at him. What's wrong? It's great here. Are you kidding? We're doing so nicely in Goshen. Only Jacob understands it. So Jacob turns to God, having blessed Don, get us out of this place. The horse and the rider, which is Mitzrayim, we need your salvation. And Jacob's prayers are answered. Shiratayam. Sus So Jacob's prayers were answered. That's my suggestion. I must say, with all due immodesty, that's not bad. <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. Yeah.
It's, like it's actually the pshat in the Chumash. It's actually the pshat. It's no one's blessing. It's not Dun's blessing. It's not God's blessing. In the middle of the blessings, he's davening. But no one under, turns to God. No one understands this. He turns to God. I understand. You understand. No one else gets it. We, we need salvation now. We need Yeshua right now. We're in Mitzrayim. We need salvation. Anyway, let me get back to the last point is over here. So is there a significance to the word Akev in that blessing? Which is Yahweh. Because he's a snake. The snake huh? always bites at the heel. There are different no, kinds of. But the heel, when he is born, he grabs a heel and his name Yaakov. Of course. You, you, look, it is highly significant. We have to wait. That's all I can't. So to answer you would take an hour. Okay. Give the correct, the appropriate answer is an hour. <laughs> Jacob's Jacob's name Yaakov and the heel and the Akev, of course. The Akev, we, when you hit, see the word Akev in the book of Genesis, you think of one thing, which is the snake. Oh, right? Think, <laughs> the snake bites at the heel. The heel is the place of greatest vulnerability. So the Yaakov and the Akev and the Nachash are deeply connected. The ones who understood this very well, actually, they've taken a different way, but they understood the connection between Yaakov and the Nachash is, of course, the uh, Zohar, understood it to the end. And of course, they are deeply connected. I have a lot to say about it, but I can't do that now, but you're right in connecting those two. Let me make one last point over here. And, you know, there's more to say here. This chapter, we could spend a lot more time, but there was an earlier question in the chat, which was the following question. The fourth generation shall return to the land. And it says, for the sin of the Amori is not yet complete. Okay, you know, when we resume these classes, I'll have to pick up with the Amori, who are mentioned also in chapter 14, of course. But um, I would say the following. Chapter 15 is the covenant. That's chapter 15. The question is, what is chapter 17? Because chapter 17 is all about circumcision and also mentions covenant many times, actually. So one question is, what is the relationship between chapter 15 and chapter 17? I will make one small comment now and we continue to learn together and it's gonna be new material. Every new people are invited. It's not just a continuation of the class. It'll be new. Everybody's new people are welcome to come. If you know anybody interested in learning about yeah, Avram on Sunday morning, please tell them to come and happily join. Um, yeah, so what is interesting here is that the description of the covenant in 15 is different than 17. Let me simply say that I'm gonna throw out the inhabitants of the land at a certain time when their time is up, okay? is hardly, you know, it's like I hire you for a job. Oh, it's so nice you hired me for the job. That's a very nice job. I'm so glad you thought of me. Well, the truth is the guy before you was a real bum. That's hardly a compliment. The Dorivi Yashuvo Haina, Mavona Haina is not the highest accolade. I'll throw them out when their time is up. It's but in 17 is different. In 17, the terms of the covenant are benu benecha. I'm setting up a covenant between me and you, not by anybody else. It's not comparing it to anything else. It's between me and you. 
which of course is a different level. I do believe 17 and 15 are not two separate covenants. I believe there's one covenant, but it's a covenant which gets reformulated later. As we often see that we have a set of verses that through a later set of verses become understood differently. So let's leave it at that for now. Also interesting, and we'll maybe pick up with this when we resume about the, uh, the uh, Emori. Why here are the nations of Canaan uh, typified by Emori? Usually it's Canaan, the land of Canaan, and here it's Emori who are mentioned in chapter 14. That's also an interesting question. So we'll stop at this point. Um, when do we resume on this I'm not exactly sure when we resume. It's either, usually it's the end of, we have other programs. We have a two week program with all kinds of special pieces to it about food and the nature of food and all that should be very interesting. Uh, so everybody's welcome to that. There probably will be some special classes in January. I hope so. So we're doing, the truth is that with this virus and the COVID and terrible business, but as far as the learning is concerned, we have more people than ever studying with Atresha. And our programs are going, you know, we, we, have, we plan to do our summer high school program for girls this summer. We're gonna rent a space in a camp and, and take over a camp. And we uh, have our yeshiva in Israel, which is raising the bar of learning for women. We're doing okay. Atresha education, we've never been in a better place, actually. We can use help financially, that's another story. But in terms of what we're doing educationally, We've never been stronger, never reached more people. It's crazy. Uh, we have to communicate that to the world. The world doesn't know that. That is the reality actually right now. As far as the learning goes, you know, it's uh, hopefully there'll be more opportunities to learn in January, but this class will resume probably at the very end of January. That's usually what happens. Uh, well, we'll see. One never knows. Anyway, thank you all for joining and looking thank forward you. to uh, learning Thanks with you again. Uh, thank you. Stay well. Makes thank my Sunday mornings. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.